Well, good morning, church. It's good to be gathered together on this Lord's Day. I hope that you have been enjoying uh, the uh, change of season and uh, are able to um, give thanks to God uh, here as we have this holiday weekend. Uh, But I hope as Christians that you will be mindful to give thanks to God for really just the remarkable freedoms that we enjoy. Uh, When you look through world history, um, the ability for God's people to gather uh, publicly like this and to sing praise and to uh, hear God's word preached, to own copies of God's word and to carry them without fear, um, really, it's just remarkable. And I hope that your hearts are, are, will find a, a, a moment over this holiday weekend to give thanks to God for, for what he's let us enjoy. Take your Bibles and find your way to Romans 14. Last week, we finished our expository series in Philippians. And uh, I will be, uh, my wife and I will be traveling um, for the next two Sundays. We'll be uh, celebrating 20 years of marriage. I know you're all very impressed with me for uh, hanging on for 20 years. Um, uh, so we finished uh, Philippians. Before we get into our new series, uh, which will be Acts, Lord willing, we'll have a couple of Sundays here of kind of transition. Uh, here, Romans 14, the next two Sundays, Steve Hafer will be preaching for us. And then, uh, Lord willing, we'll be getting into our series in Acts. For this morning, find your way to Romans chapter 14. One of the theological themes that the Apostle Paul returns to frequently in Philippians was the theme of unity, the theme of Christians living in peace with one another and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And I think we can agree that unity is becoming, or maybe some might argue has become, kind of an endangered species in our current cultural climate. We live in a highly outraged society. We feel that. We live in a highly polarized culture. And conversation and debate have been often replaced by outrage and cancel culture. Here's an example I came across reading an article this last week. their high school debate. Now, I wasn't involved in high school debate, but I've read a little bit about this article and their uh, examination of it. But I learned that debate judges often post what is called a paradigm, okay, a paradigm, where the debate judge will, will explain something that the debate judge is looking for to help the debaters in that particular occasion. Uh, so, for instance, uh, one, one of the debate judges might list a paradigm that would say, Uh, that they hope that the debaters will focus on clarity over speed. And so the debater would know, okay, this is what this this debate judge is looking for. Uh, Recently, one judge's paradigm stated this. Before anything else, including being a debate judge, again, this is high school debate, I am a Marxist, Leninist, Mayoist. I cannot check the revolutionary proletarian science at the door when I'm judging. I will no longer evaluate and thus never vote for arguments such as capitalism is good, defense of the U.S. is good, Israel has a right to defend itself, etc. Now, maybe I've just thrown all of you into this like political turmoil. Um, but what we have here is an example of the polarized nature of our culture expressed in a high school debate tournament where debate judges are making statements like this, which means that they're not actually... Um, judging the debate based upon evidence and support and persuasiveness, but in some instances, the, ide- the ideology of the judge, him or herself, would determine the outcome of the debate. So as Christians, this is the world we live in. We live in a polarized world. And if we're not careful and we're not aware of the forces in our culture pressing on us, what could happen is 
we could start to have our thinking being shaped by the current cultural forces so that we as Christians could then lose our ability to converse about matters of faith and practice with each other. We might even unknowingly, or sadly knowingly, sabotage peace and unity within the church. And we might adopt a hostile outlook towards other Christians or view other Christians with suspicion or fear. These are all things that are happening in our cultural climate. Or even worse, we might lose the ability to talk winsomely about the hope of Jesus with the people that need to hear it most. So what are we to do? Well, here's the good news. Christians can live together in unity and peace even when they don't see eye to eye on every biblical matter because we have God's word. God has given us a roadmap for how to live through cultures like this. The Christian church has thrived for millennia and it has gone through challenging times over the church history. And so God has a plan for us as a church. We can be assured that we have what we need for life and godliness. So think of it this way. The Christian gospel gives Christians an enormous advantage and essential resources to live like this, to pursue unity and peace with one another as Christians. So I'm going to take us to a couple of spots in the scriptures where the Christian church went through these types of challenges. Romans 14, and then we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 8, and then I hope to tie it together for why this matters for us today, okay? And I, I wanna, my hope is that we will be better equipped as a church family to pursue peace and unity in our own lives and in this church family. Um, I think we need this. Um, our, our church has been through some challenges on this. That's no mystery. We live in a world that is challenging that regularly. We find this challenge in our own hearts. I need this, and which has uh, prompted my own study of this, and I think we need this. Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read um, some, past, some sections from Romans 14 and then jump down into Romans 15. I think it'll be on screen for us, okay? Um, so I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 and then jump down to verses 14 through 23 and then read a section of Romans 15. You can follow along on screen or in your own, in your own Bible. Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance 
And through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in the scriptures. You are a God who is all wise. You know the end from the beginning. One day with you is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Lord, you are supreme and majestic. You stand apart from all things and yet you see and know all things. You are holy and we worship you this morning. Lord, we confess that we need help. We want to live as your people in a way that displays your glory, in a way that you would use us as the sweet aroma of Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again to draw more to know you personally as their Savior. We want to be a people who are a light on a hill, who are spreading the good news of Christ in winsome ways. Lord, we need help. And so we ask that you would teach us from your word that we would not just go through a service and just kind of go through the motions of sitting and listening and leaving, but Lord, challenge us, equip us, strengthen us, deepen our faith, uh, build our skill, our winsomeness in being a people of the gospel. Lord, the people in our neighborhoods and communities, you are their only hope. And so we pray that they might experience the hope that we have experienced, the joy that we have known in Christ the peace that we have felt, that we have in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I know that uh, that was a lot that we, I read out loud, and there's probably some questions that you have on a number of things in there. We're not going to get into unpacking all that is in these verses, but I wanted to expose you to just a snapshot of what is written to the church in Rome as they went through a challenging time. There was controversy within the church. It seems that the debate was centering around what Christians in that church would eat or wouldn't eat. You see in verses 1 and 2, there at the end of verse 2, it talks about somebody, uh, what they eat, and while the weak person eats only vegetables. And if there are any vegetarians in here, you're all thinking, aha, this is my biblical proof for this way of life. Well, sad to say that is not what this text is saying. This, uh, this debate is not over whether you should be a keto diet or a paleo diet or a vegetarian diet or you fill in the blank diet there. The issue goes back to what God had required of ancient Israel in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about the foods that they could and could not eat. Now, I know this kind of strikes us probably as odd, right? We live in America where um, restaurants say, your way right away at Burger King now, right? And uh, so we kind of have this strange idea of how in the world would, would, you, would, would anybody think of telling me what I can or can't eat and making it something that's spiritual? Well, I mean, ancient Israel lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years with that very fact. There were things that God said, don't eat this. And you might, as you read through those laws, you might be thinking, well, why, God? I mean, it talks about how it has to have, you know, a cloven hoof and it has to chew the cut and if it does this or does that. And it's, we just, as modern Americans, we scratch our head and think this is weird, okay? Well, these dietary laws have been obeyed by, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years by faithful ancient Israelites and what you have here in Rome, in the church in Rome, is that you, it sounds like what you've got is there were Jewish Christians in Rome that felt strongly that they needed to keep observing those dietary laws. There were those that disagreed. And in fact, you might be wondering, why did God give those laws anyways? 
Well, there's probably a bunch of reasons, but here's two quick kind of summary reasons to help us understand what's going on here in Romans 14. One purpose of those dietary laws was to set Israel apart from other nations as God's chosen people. One of those reasons that God gave those laws is to help Israel keep a sense of national identity as they were a small nation surrounded by other pagan nations of greater size, influence, economical, and military power. And faithful Israelites ordered their life around these laws as an expression of their worship of God. Another purpose for those dietary laws was to give them a reminder that you just can't go into God's presence whenever and however you'd like. I know we kind of scratch our heads at this as as New Testament Christians who now have had our access to God secured through Christ. But ancient Israel, there were these laws. In fact, even the priests had to wash themselves go through the ceremonial rite to wash themselves before they engage in their priestly duties. In Romans 14, if you look down in verse 14, Paul explains that certain foods were not literally in and of themselves clean or unclean, approved or disapproved. Jesus Christ is the one who makes us clean and presentable before God the Father, not the foods we eat or don't eat. I mean, he gets right at it there. So no amount of performance or obedience to regulations can ever make someone acceptable before God. Paul admits this, and he writes that. And by the way, this is what makes Christianity different from moralism. If if you think Christianity is just kind of follow these rules, do these things, and then you'll be okay and accepted by God, that's not Christianity. That's moralism. Christianity is something uniquely different. Your access to God is not something that you secure through your performance or your behavior to any sort of list of laws, your access to God is received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so in in Romans 14, and we know through other New Testament texts, we know with certainty that the old covenant requirements of these dietary laws had been fulfilled and replaced in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Um, You can learn that um, definitively by looking at Acts 10, where the Apostle Peter has a vision from God and God tells him, don't call what I have made clean unclean. And then he is sent to give the gospel to Cornelius, a Greek and a Gentile. And um, uh, God proved to, to, the, to the Christian church that these laws were no longer in effect. Now, in Romans 14, it appears that there was a group of people who believed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and they believed that Jesus was the only way to come into the presence of God, to be accepted by him, to have their sins forgiven, but they just couldn't shake the centuries of religious tradition in regards to these dietary laws. Are you at least sympathetic to them? I mean, can you, can you get that? I mean, does it make a little bit of sense? Like, okay, yeah, this is, this is the way it had always been done. In fact, they had Old Testament scripture, Torah, that required this. They felt it was wrong for Christians to eat these unclean foods. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 14, in verse 1 of chapter 15, Paul calls those people who believe that, who felt this way, as being weak in the faith. And again, even though they believed the gospel of Jesus, they just hadn't been able to work out all the implications of the gospel in that specific area. Hang with me here, okay? They were creating an unnecessary requirement for their life, but it helped them feel spiritually okay. It gave them a sort of spiritual security. By obeying these dietary laws, they felt spiritual. They felt right. It felt like this is what they needed to do. They didn't understand yet how Jesus and what he had done applied to that area of life and would release them 
from having to be mindful of those dietary laws. They were no longer in effect. They had been fulfilled in Christ. And in contrast to those, in chapter 15, verse 1, he, Paul writes about we who are strong. So there's two different kinds of people there. Weak, those that believe they needed to obey these dietary laws. Those that said, hey, this is what was required. I still feel like we need to do this. We, can't, we shouldn't just disregard God's word. I understand that we have Jesus and he is the only way, but this is still what God had for ancient Israel for all these years past. If it was good enough for them, it's probably good enough for us. Those were weak, and then he talks about some who were strong. Those who were strong understood that really there's nothing wrong with eating that food. So it sounds like you have just a kind of a run-of-the-mill internal church controversy, right? I mean, you've got people in the church. Both are on different sides of this issue. Both are making a case from kind of, well, the Bible says, or this is the way it's been done, or this is how Christians, this is how God's people have always done it. They're, they're kind of making a case that way, or in inference of that, no, Jesus has come. Jesus has released us from this. He's fulfilled it. This is who we have access to God with. It seems like it was just kind of a run-of-a-mill thing there. Well, hang on. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You're in Romans, so 1 Corinthians 8 is just going to be a few pages further or a few screens um, beyond where you are. 1 Corinthians 8. When you find your way there, you'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, Now concerning food offered to idols. And you just kind of chuckle because here's another church... (laughs) in Greco-Roman world, and Paul is writing to them about an issue that they're debating, and it has to do with what they eat. Okay? I just find that interesting. You don't? Okay. I mean, I just think it's interesting that, I mean, when's the last time we had, the Christian church here, had a fight or a debate or an argument over what we eat? All right? And here's two churches, right? And it's both inscripturated that we have for us here, for us today. Here we are kind of laughing at, at their argument and debate. I wonder in 200 years who is going to be laughing at our debates, right? <laughs> now for some context, okay? In Corinth, most of the food that you would buy in the open-air markets, as far as I understand, had probably been blessed by a pagan priest who had given an invocation at the market in the morning. This meant that much of the meat for sale in the market was blessed in the name of a pagan god something like Apollo or Athena or something like that, right? Now, there were Christians in the church in Corinth who said that they, you should not eat meat that had been blessed, that had been offered to an idol, that had this connection back to these pagan deities. You can't do that. And it was likely caused by a lingering suspicion in them that they just couldn't shake about the power and presence, quote-unquote, of these pagan deities. This is what they had been saved out of. They had been raised in pagan homes, worshiping these pluralistic gods, these Greek and Roman gods. And now they had embraced Christ as the Lord and Savior, but they maybe still had these lingering fears, these misgivings about the reminder of their old pagan way of life. When Paul calls them in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 8, you see this? However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience, here it is, being weak is defiled. So here again, you have Paul identifying some in the church as being weak because of their carefulness, of their fastidiousness about not wanting any sort of association with these old pagan rites and rituals in regards to their food. Paul calls them weak. It's because they didn't understand the implications of how Christ's triumph over sin and death 
and it affected every area of life, even the food that they might buy in the marketplace. And I know you're thinking this really has nothing to do with us. We're in modern-day America. This isn't the debate we're at. But hang in there, okay? This is going to make sense, I think, more for our present-day setting here in a minute. They just, in Corinth, these Christians hadn't been able to grasp in their heads and in their hearts the full reality of how the gospel gives them freedom and how these old pagan connections really don't have any power. Jesus is the one who has all the power. And so the controversy in Corinth was not, was, you know, everyone didn't agree. You had the group who were, who were the, the, the could-eats or the can-eats, and you had a group who were the can't-eats, the won't-eats, okay? And they're arguing. Now, essentially what we have here in 1 Corinthians 8 is a snapshot of two groups of, of Christians who are stuck in a controversy about a matter of religion and faith. All right? I don't know which side you'd be on. Uh, maybe, maybe there's most of us are thinking, hey, I think, I think eating meat's a good thing, so that's the group that you'd be on. Well, that's a very pragmatic approach. That's just because you like meat, okay? Or maybe you don't like meat. These people were making decisions not about whether they like meat or not. That was pragmatism. They're making decisions based upon their religious feeling and, and their concern about these pagan connections and their conscience being bothered and disturbed. And so what we have here in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8 it seems to be like this issue of this conflict going on within them over this matter. So let's think about it. In Corinth, right, where the debate was, don't eat meat that had been offered idols because they're concerned about that old pagan connection. In Corinth, who do you think were the people that likely had the issue with that meat that had been blessed by a pagan priest that had a connection back to the pagan deities? Do you think it was Jewish Christians or Greek Christians? Nobody wants to answer out loud. Okay. It would most likely have been the Greek Christians, the ones who had been saved out of that paganism. They were the ones that had those strong connections, that were concerned. It was likely those Greek Christians, those, those, those Gentiles, non-Jewish Christians. Does that make sense? That's what they were raised, that's what they were around, and they've been safe from it. They probably want nothing to do with that. And so they're not even going to eat meat that had that connection. Their conscience was defiled. They were concerned about that. The Jewish Christians, the ones who had been raised worshiping Yahweh, that understood that God is the true God, these pagan deities are nothing. These idols are nothing, right? The Jewish Christians were the ones probably rolling their eyes at these Greek Christians who were so concerned and making such a big deal and saying, don't eat that meat. Do you get that? All right, are you with me? Are you with me? <laughs> okay. Now, in Romans 14, it was the opposite. Right? Who do you think were the people that were concerned about following the dietary laws, about being concerned about what they should eat based upon those old Torah dietary laws? Do you think it was the Greek Christians or the Jewish Christians? The Jewish ones, right? That's what they had been raised to know. This is how their consciences had been, had been conditioned. This is, what they had, this, is, this is how God's people had always behaved. And now with Jesus and fulfillment, it's been all turned upside down. But hey, let's still follow that. And, and those are the ones, they, the Jewish Christians were the ones wanted to hang on to that, saying we're not going to eat anything that could be unclean. And the Roman, the Greek Christians there in Rome were probably rolling their eyes thinking, oh my goodness, these Jewish Christians, I can't handle them. I mean, don't they get it? I mean, don't they understand what Jesus has done? It was the flip. 
I, this to me is fascinating. Maybe it's not fascinating to you. If not, well, I guess the sermon's a dud. Oh, but this to me is fascinating that you have in the scriptures two different churches kind of debating and arguing over the same issue, the issue of meat, of, of food, and what they're going to do, and it's all related back into their religious context, and yet you have two different groups on opposite sides of it depending upon where they're at. In Rome, it was the Jewish Christians that were saying, we've got to be really careful. The Greeks were rolling their eyes at them. In Corinth, it was the other way around. The Greeks were the ones that were saying, man, we've got to be really careful, and the Jewish Christians were rolling their eyes at them. You see that? So, what we have here, say, well, what's the point? Why are you preaching and teaching us on this? Well, what I want to do is help us be more effective as Christians in our modern age to think through these issues together because the Christian church must be able to survive controversies from within. There's going to be debate. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be um, arguments, so to speak, about matters of what faith and practice look like on these lesser issues. We're not debating upon whether Jesus is God or whether justification is by faith alone. No. We're talking about, hey, this is the way God has always done it. I really believe that this is the way we should keep doing it. Here's the reasons why. If somebody else makes a counterpoint on, against that, we're talking about debated third-tier matters. We must be able to work through those things together. How did the Christian church do it in ages past? We have two snapshots here in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. So what is this going to do for us? Well, I think it helps us understand this. And again, I came across this as I was studying this passage. It was commented that what this shows us, these two snapshots, what it shows us is that our backgrounds, our cultural histories, they exert an enormous influence on what we believe we should do about what the Bible says in practical matters. It exerts an enormous influence. And again, we're not saying that this replaces the gospel. That's not what was at stake here in 1 Corinthians 8 or in Romans 14 doesn't replace the gospel, but there are ways where we all might be slow to seeing and embracing how the gospel works itself out in some ways. So that you can have in the same church Christians who confess the same gospel, Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and coming again, right? The only hope for the world. You can have in the same church people who are arguing about, well, I think the gospel should change our lives in this way and that way because of these backgrounds. All of us read our Bibles to a great degree through the lenses of these backgrounds and our sets of experiences. We do. Now, here's why this matters, because in our pursuit of peace, in our pursuit of Christian unity as Christ's church, we've got to admit this about ourselves. We need to, we need to realize this. This has been convicting for me. Well, we all like to think that we see the world the way it is, right? <laughs> the older I get, the more I realize, oh my goodness. None of us are exempt from this. None of us, myself included. And in order for us as a church family to work forward and walk forward together as a people who display God's glory in the gospel, we need to admit this reality in our lives, that we all have this happening. And that requires humility. If we ignore this, if we say, no, 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 I'm not affected by any cultural background, I'm not affected by my, my previous experiences, I'm, not, I'm just reading the Bible, that's all, it's right there. If, if that's the only way we approach things, then what we're going to do is we're going to shut down any chance for meaningful conversation or dialogue in our pursuit of unity and peace as Christ's church. So this means, and I've had to, to work this through my own heart, whenever you think this is the way, because it's always been that way, that might be the Christians in Rome, right? 
well, the dietary laws, this is the way it's always been. Or if you, if you say, this is the way it should be because I feel so strongly about it. I really believe that, that this should be concerning and, and don't you, aren't you concerned about what this could lead to? And that would be the Christians in Corinth who had those connections. Whenever we do that, we're not talking doctrine or theology anymore. We're talking culture and background and experience or traditionalism. In some cases, maybe even our, our background in regards to um, to, to what we've been exposed to and our upbringing, those debates and controversies actually rest on differences of, in that way instead of actual biblically-based differences. Yet sometimes we can't see it. So, I find it fascinating how different the results are for each group in each setting, in Rome and in Corinth. Same, similar issue, different sides of the issue, different groups. And that just shows us how the background of one group in one setting makes them wiser, stronger in one setting. Do you get that? And yet, in another setting, the same background sets them at a disadvantage. Do we understand this? I know this is kind of philosophical, but you've got in, in Rome people who are saying, man, these dietary laws, we've got to obey them, and they're the ones who are weaker, and yet in Corinth, you have the, you see what I mean? There, there's in one setting, you have one group that is stronger in one setting, but in the same, in a different setting, they're going to be at a disadvantage. And say, so what does that teach us for today? Well, here's, I think, some of the, some of the good, pra- I know this is kind of more of a practical uh, sermon, not really an exegetical in the sense of looking at just one passage, kind of looking at you know, what's happening in church history and trying to draw some of those implications out for ourselves today. What does this mean for us today is that our backgrounds and our cultural experiences in some instances make us blind to the implications of the gospel in some ways. Um, That takes humility to admit that there are ways that we've been raised, ways that we've kind of been thinking about the Bible that have just always been that way and that it results in us kind kind of having blind spots to the implications of the gospel in some ways. However, in other instances, those same backgrounds and cultural experiences can make us wiser in some instances. There's a strength and a weakness, and it depends on the circumstance that we're in. Yet we usually think, hey man, we've got this. We're strong everywhere. That's kind of how we think of ourselves, right? Maybe that's just me. <laughs> I'm trying to read what's happening here. So, here's, here's something for us to understand then. To the degree that we all share the same background, the same cultural experiences, the same historical experiences, we will be at a greater disadvantage in seeing our gospel blind spots as, as a group. Does that make sense? So if you, you talk, I mean, it's, you, you, uh, I've heard, um, like on social media, right? You can have this, this kind of echo chamber created about being fed only the, the, the kind of the content that, that, that the algorithms, right? I know that sounds spooky, right? Know that you're going to want. And so it's been researched and it's been shown that there's this kind of echo chamber that is created as you scroll through and consume social media, posts that are, that are, that are given or advertisements or on and on, and it just kind of reinforces your position because it keeps feeding you that more and more and more. Well, that can happen in real life. Right? And the more that we are all the same in our backgrounds and experiences and cultures, we're all going to be thinking the same and we think, well, that's great, that's unity. Actually not. It could just be a shared blind spot. 
Does that make sense? We just could all be blind in the same ways. So I think it's fascinating that the, church, that the scriptures dispel us of the notion of people in a church just kind of getting along because they all have a shared blind spot. It's just fascinating. I keep using that word. I'm sorry. I'll try to use a different word. I find it interesting that you've got Greeks and Jews all in one church from radically different backgrounds, from radically different cultural experiences, and now they're all in the same church worshiping together. What we would do today in modern America is have a church for the Greeks and a church for Jewish Christians so we can all just get along. That's what we would do in our modern-day setting, right? That's not what they did in the New Testament age. They were all in the same church together, worshiping together. And it was problematic. (laughs) It's been inscripturated for us. So, in practical terms, what does this mean? Well, it means that we need each other. We really need each other. We need each other, and we need the diversity of God saving us out of various backgrounds and cultural experiences. We need that diversity for us to truly enjoy the joy of Christian unity. That's what we need. So here's something down to earth. After one of our elective sessions, I know this, this ties into what we've been going through in our elective sessions on theological triage and, and how to discern between doctrines and their importance and how our response should be to differences in, in, in relation to that. And a church member, after one of our sessions, uh, was asking me some follow-up questions afterwards. And in that discussion, this church member commented that, well, maybe it's just best if we as church members just don't talk to each other about these disputed issues. Like maybe it's just best if we just kind of leave them alone and, and just avoid them entirely so we can not, not have these challenges in front of us. And I, and I get it, right? I mean, don't you kind of feel that way sometimes? Maybe that's, maybe that's just the way we should get along. That's, by the way, um, that's, that's common practice in, in our world's approach. Our world is like this idea of tolerance, but then they're intolerant. Well, anyways, never mind. Um, yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's one strategy. But, and I understand that instinct. I'm sympathetic to it. I feel it even in my in, in impulse in, my, in myself because I'm a creature of this culture more than I care to admit. But we can't do that. We can't. In fact, I think that will only make things worse because it will cloud our ability to shine the gospel of Jesus to those who need to hear it. It'll cloud our ability to do that. And I think that's why the Apostle Paul, in in these letters, never works a church through these controversies and leads them to say, now here's what you need to do. You need to start two different churches. The Church of the Eats and the Church of the Don'ts. They'd come up with better names than that, I'm sure. He never does that. Now, I realize that from first-hand experience, even here within Highlands Baptist, right, our differences and disputes can be problematic. It can cause tension. It can cause challenges. It can be difficult emotionally. But at the same time, these disputes are part of how God intends to make us a healthy church. How God intends to make us a healthy church. Never in Romans or Corinth does Paul suggest that the way forward is to make separate churches, to just get different groups and just carry on in that different way. Never does he do that. And this teaches us something about how we as Christians must work through controversies. And we must do it. We cannot walk away from the enormous amount of work that it takes to study the Bible together. Right? Nor should we look at one another with suspicion or fear about, man, if I study the Bible with them, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to end up eating food I shouldn't eat. You know, putting it back in Corinth or Rome. You get what I mean there? I mean, can you imagine if one of the Christians in Corinth, a Jewish Christian and a Greek Christian, said, hey, let's study God's word together. 
They might be saying, well, man, I don't know, because I don't want to start buying food in the market, and I know you do. No, we, we, we cannot walk away from the enormous amount of work that it takes for us to study the Bible together or that it takes for us to worship together and to live together and to relate together and to have fellowship together. We can't. The Bible talks about iron sharpening iron, right? And I'm looking at people who I think all confess Christ. You're familiar with that idea. And, and you, 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 there's kind of this mythological desire of, man, we just want a church with a bunch of iron sharpening iron friendships and relationships, right? Isn't that what you want? We all do until it's, a, until it's offered to us, <laughs> right? Because iron sharpening iron, I mean, that word picture assumes that there is like something grating against itself and, and it's uncomfortable and metal is being removed and, and, and it's being shaped by one another. And there's like, you, you see what I mean? And so that kind of biblical wording assumes that something is, being worked through and it's challenging and difficult and so Christian here at Highlands instead of running away from each other or running at each other aggressively when these differences are discovered here's, here's the way God tells us in Romans 14, 15 1 Corinthians 8 Philippians 2 he tells us to walk together in love walk together in love it's so radically different from our world it's so radically different now how do we do that? Well, the answer is found in chapter 14, in Romans 14. I have you flip back. Sorry to make you keep flipping around in your Bible. I know we're all used to looking at one passage and just sitting there. Well, back in Romans 14, look at verse 3. Here's, here's the way forward. Paul does not say who is the right and wrong, the eats or the not eats. That's, that's not an, that, that is not the issue. There isn't a right or wrong on that. He gets back to verse 3 where he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. That is a uniquely, and I, this isn't a word original to me, but I've heard it, it's a, it's a uniquely gospely way. Does that make sense? I mean, verse 3 is so countercultural. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. That is countercultural. Here's what the culture, we are all disciples of our culture, by the way. We are. Which is why we keep gathering on Sundays, why we keep reading God's word, singing God's word, praying God's word, studying God's word together, helping each other follow Jesus. Because we want to be disciples of Jesus. And our culture also wants us to be a disciple of, of itself. Now, our culture wants us to despise each other. And that's what we see happening. It wants us to pass judgment on each other. But Paul wrote to the church in Rome, no, 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 here's the gospel way forward. Don't despise the one. Don't pass judgment on the one. The gospel is the way forward for not despising each other over these differences, over these arguments that are inevitably going to come up in a group of Christians who gather together and confess Christ and worship and study God's word from all different kinds of backgrounds. The gospel is the way forward of not passing judgment on each other, or in other words, not looking down on each other or, re or react toward each other with accusations or fear or suspicions and think the worst of each other. And you could imagine how quickly that could happen, right? I mean, in Rome, you'd have people saying, don't you believe the Old Testament? Right? I mean, God has said it. Or in Corinth, 
You mean that you're okay with cozying up to devils and demons in what you eat at night? I mean, yeah, I'm being a little bit dramatic, but maybe not. You can imagine, right? What Paul says is no. Don't, don't despise. Don't pass judgment. Why? Because God has welcomed him. That's a radically different way of looking at one another. We must always remember that in Christ we, are, we have been welcomed by God. Isn't that just remarkable? I'm looking at a group of people who confess Christ and we might have a disagreement about something and we could, we could get all hot and lathered about it, but at the end of the day, on this matter of eat or don't eat, when we're talking about those kind of matters, you've been welcomed by God. I mean, that's astonishing. I mean, what if... I keep using British monarchy, I'm sorry. But what if you got an invitation, right, to meet the king? I mean, it'd be pretty cool, right? Maybe you'd save that invitation. Friends, we have something so much greater than that. We've been welcomed by God. That's where he goes back to. And by the way, that's the core of Christian unity that Paul brings the, his reader's attention to in Philippians chapter 2. And this is where we'll finish up. Uh, can you find your way to Philippians? Philippians chapter 2. Again, in Philippians, you remember that Paul is writing to Christians who are being persecuted. He's in prison. They've been helping him. And he wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel. He makes that thesis clear in the beginning of the letter, in chapter 1, verse 27. He wants these Christians to live worthy of the gospel. Well, what does that mean? Well, he tells us in verse 27 and 28 that living worthy of the gospel means that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what it means. To live worthy of the gospel means you enjoy this unity, this one-mindedness, this one-spiritness with other Christians as you strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. To see more and more people know and embrace the joy of having Christ as Lord and Savior. So how does Paul expect them to do that? Okay, the church in Rome had issues... Paul writes about it. The church in Corinth had issues. Paul writes about it. By the way, the church in Philippi had issues. Paul writes about it. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. You remember this um, a couple months ago when we went through this, right? I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I mean, there was such a sharp dispute that Paul calls out specific individuals and tells them, come on, they need to get along in the Lord. Set down their, their, their sabers on that issue and agree in the Lord and who they are, they've been welcomed by God to borrow Romans' language. So how is Christ's church able to stand together in one spirit and strive side by side for the faith of the gospel? It seems like there's no end of things that could pull us apart. Well, the answer is found in chapter 2. And this is, we'll be very, I'll be very quick here. He says in chapter 2, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So what Paul lists here, and by the way, the word if there is any, if there is any, is a third class condition in his language, which meant, listen, there's certainty. If, if the sky is blue, that's kind of the idea. And it's not like any of us are thinking, well, I don't know, is it? I mean, if it's not, well, I guess it's not. We get the idea. It's, it's, a, it's a grammatical effect of saying, okay, yeah. What Paul lists here are the raw materials of Christian unity. Christian unity is not uniformity. It's not a church of the eats and a church of the don't eats. Christian unity 
It's a shared loyalty and allegiance, a shared confession of Christ as Lord and Savior. In Philippians 2, the encouragement of Christ, His comfort, His love, and His Spirit enable us to be of the same mind and have the same love. We're not a church of that love the, the, the eats or the don't eats. I'm using, okay, you understand what I mean there? Using Corinth and Rome. Okay, get that? It's not that we love that. Man, I'm so glad that you don't eat because ah, I'm a don't eater too. We have so much in common. Let's get together and have a Bible study. Let's start a church. No, no. He says, listen, who you are in Christ, what you confess in Him. Because of Jesus, Christians can be in full accord and of one mind in the Lord. In the Lord. We don't require uniformity on everything, on every application. It's not a threat to the gospel. Not every difference, the eats and the don't eats, that's not a threat to the gospel. Now, I guess it could be if somebody started to say, you don't have your sins forgiven if you eat or if you don't eat. Now, if they went that far, and Paul warns the church in Galatia not to have a, a, a different kind of gospel, but Christian unity means we talk with each other about our disagreements, understanding our shared confession of Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. And when we do debate about matters like eat and don't eat, we do it in a, in a place not from, look at verse 3, uh, yeah, look at verse 3 of Philippians 2. We don't do it from selfish ambition. Man, I feel that rise up in me. I have to confess that sin, right? When, you, when you're arguing, you've got this like, I'm going to win selfish ambition, man, or conceit. Conceit is just a fancy word for, for like being really puffed up in pride. I've had to confess that. That's, that's, that's where we go, right? When we think we're right. Not from those positions. But what? In humility. Ah, oh, there it is again. <clears throat> humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. You mean I've got to listen to them? I can't just tell them why they're still wrong and why I'm right? I've had to confess this. So, when we disagree, what do Christians do? We do, we walk forward in love, not looking to our own interests. So, what makes this doable? Because here's, here's the challenge, right? I think we could go through a sermon like this, look at, look, at the, look at the examples from the scripture like this and go, cool, and then walk out and not live any different, right? I mean, somebody says, well, hey, I want to talk to you about so-and-so. We're like, we're loaded for bear, you know? So, what makes this doable? Well, look at verse 11 of chapter 2. And I'm jumping over the whole section, the glorious hymn there about Jesus. But look at verse 11. This is where everything is, this is where Paul is taking his readers out of the, the weeds of the debate and up to the, to, the, to the glorious heights of verse 11. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what purpose? Why does that matter to the glory of God the Father? That's why it matters. God's glory. So, is God glorious? Yes. We're kind of like, yeah. Well, by the way, that's where Paul takes the readers in Philippians, and that's where he takes the readers in Romans 15. Now, you don't have to turn there. I think I have it on screen, but Romans 15, verses 5 through 7, again, where Paul's writing about the eats and don't eats, and here's how you need to treat each other, and he says this, may the God of endurance, he's like, he's praying for these Christians as they try to work through this. May the God of endurance and encouragement... <laughs> Don't we need that? <laughs> right? Okay, only I need that. Tough crowd this morning, okay? Right? We need that, right? I mean, just be real, right? I love how real Paul is. He knows these people are worn out, exasperated. They're rolling their eyes at each other because they eat and they don't eat, right? 
So what do we need? We need a God of endurance and encouragement (laughs) to grant you to live in what? Such harmony with one another. He assumes that the church is going to be full of eats and don't eats. And they're going to be making their cases passionately. Right? To live in harmony with one another. How? In accord with Christ Jesus. That's how. In accord with Christ. It's just it's marvelous. It, it's like, well, don't, aren't these matters important? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we argue about them? Sure, it's iron sharpens iron. But let's help each other see and understand God's Word better. Yes. But ultimately, understand this. Our goal is in accord with Christ Jesus. Here's the result. That together, together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So an analogy I was thinking about is like, Sometimes we think about like our debates and disagreements. Like, imagine you're in a stadium for your favorite team. And if you don't have a favorite team, just pretend, okay? Um, choose your sport or, or hobby, okay? And you've got their team who scores a goal. And you've got your team who scores a goal. You're, you're shouting because your team scored a goal. And then you're quiet. Oh, man. Because they're all screaming and shouting and cheering because their team scored a goal. And what we look at these controversies, we're like, well... I mean, we need them to cheer for our team when they score a goal. And they're saying, well, we want you to cheer for our team when we score a goal. And it's like an impasse, right? But here's, here's the gospel. Here's how powerful the gospel is. It's that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the challenge. We need to stop cheering for the wrong things. That's, that's really where it hits us. We are cheering for these little lesser debates and matters and we're not cheering together about Jesus. We've lost sight of him. I lose sight of him when I get enmeshed in these things. We lose sight of Christ. And Paul is so patient to bring the Christian church through the ages in these different contexts back to, listen, with one voice, glorify, glorify the eats. No, 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 no. With one voice, celebrate the don't eats. No, 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 no. Here's what he says, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we share in this pursuit of glorifying God, the eats and the don't eats, what do we do? Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How has God welcomed you? Isn't this convicting? It's convicting to me. This is so countercultural, isn't it? No? Don't you think this is like radically different than our culture? I mean, like our world system has no idea of how to handle this kind of thing. Only Christians. We're that. We're weird. That's how radical the gospel is. So church family, in all of this, you're like, oh, come on. You're talking about controversy. Can't we just forget and move past it? No, because God really intends to deepen and provide a healthy church as we work through this thing because it allows us to give glory to God. So here's what we have. We have a wonderful opportunity as a church to glorify Christ to a world that desperately needs to see Christ. So what does this look like practically, right? Here's just an example, just a quick snapshot. We need, to, we need for unbelievers to scratch their heads in amazement if they were to walk in these doors and hear us sing in one voice and pray together and confess Christ in the shared confession. They need to scratch their heads in amazement when they recognize as they get to know us more that there are Democrats and Republicans in the same church praising God together. Wow, it's quiet. (laughs) 
They need to scratch their heads in amazement and just be shocked at, tell me more about Jesus. How, how did he do this? How does he do this? doesn't mean that we don't have things that we could argue and debate over that we hold deeply to in those matters, but there's something much greater and grander. For instance, on the negative side, we will not see our neighborhoods and communities transformed by the gospel, by, by this church and this community, if we are a church of, and I'm trying to choose things that I don't think are really our hot-button issues for us, but maybe a little bit as we get there. But, for instance, we're not a church of homeschoolers versus public schoolers. I had a pastor local here recently tell me that they were going through a controversy in their church over that kind of thing. There was a strong emphasis one way or over the other, and it was really starting to put tension in the church family over that. And there were lines being drawn, and it was like, how do we diffuse this? Or teetotalers versus non-teetotalers? Or open borders versus closed borders? Or, here we go, pre-millennial versus amillennial? The church... The Christian church, we have the glorious gospel of Christ. So, let's make sure we don't try to replace the glory of God the Father and Jesus Christ with something else, with some other lesser doctrinal distinctive that we feel strongly about in eat or don't eat, Romans 14 or 1 Corinthians 8. Fill in the blank with our current thing or what it'll be in the next 50 years or 75 years or 100 years that our kids' kids will be going through. We can be equipped to move forward through it with the truth of the gospel. You might say, well, this is hard. This is difficult. It is. And I'll ask the music team to come up and get us ready to to finish. You've hunkered in there for a long sermon, a kind of brainy sermon. Sorry about that. But as the music team comes up, you say, well, this is hard. This is really difficult. Is this really possible? And it is. And I've read this passage now. This will be the third time, but I want to put it up on screen for you again. But Romans 15, look at verse 5 through 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray.